1: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be interviewing Kate Phillips about her book titled Bought and Sold. that's come out this year in 2022 from Luath Press up in Scotland, um, which is a really interesting book that looks at uh, the slave trade in the British Empire and specifically the role of Scots and Scotland Um, in this piece of history that I think a lot of us are beginning to understand more about um, and really have quite a lot of responsibility to understand and learn more. Um, So this book is a really key piece um, of that history and understanding um, kind of two particular parts of the British Empire, Scotland um, and Jamaica, and how they kind of go together in this particular way. So I'm very excited to welcome you, Kate, to the podcast.
0: And I'm very uh, happy to talk with you today. Wonderful.
1: Can we start off, please, with you introducing yourself a bit and explaining why you decided to write this book?
0: Yes, I'm a social development specialist. Um, I'm retired. I used to work with adults teaching about rights and encouraging Um, accountability and community organisations. I worked worldwide with lots of organisations, political parties in Africa. And at one point, I taught trade unionists from the Caribbean. But I never really intended to write a book. I went on a visit to Jamaica after I retired, and I found so much that was Scottish in the island Uh, It surprised me because apart from Jamaica Street in Glasgow, there's not a trace of any Jamaican history here in Scotland that I knew of anyway. I started reading uh, when I got home, but I found very little about the Scots in Jamaica in our history books. So I had to go back to first-hand accounts. And actually, there were loads more of these than I ever imagined diaries letters new, newspaper articles from those times so much material that i started writing it all down so that's how it all began it was a bit of an obsession i wanted to understand uh, what scots were doing in jamaica and what was that what was that history um, obviously i knew it was connected to slavery and i i also felt that that was perhaps one reason why it wasn't easy to find that history, that it had been blotted out. We have no Jamaicans in, well, very few Jamaicans in Scotland, and the history had been completely hidden. So that's how I got started. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, that's a pretty good way to start. Hmm, I'm curious about this thing. Oh, wait, there's not a lot of information. Guess I need to go digging. Um, I think that's how a lot of good books start off, um, because then there's a very clear sort of goal and point to this.
0: I kept... Um, yeah, Yes, I kept sort of scratching the surface and getting deeper and deeper into things because the more I found, the more I needed to know more to understand. <laughs> so it's like a mining um, of research, of information.
1: Mm, that makes a lot of sense. Um, well, you've you've mined quite a lot of really interesting information in the book. So I'm hoping that through the interview, we can kind of touch on maybe sort of a highlights tour, kind of um, a quick tour of um, the some of the highlights, some of the most interesting pieces of the book to really understand this bit of history that has not been told a lot. Um, so, to start off with, kind of the obvious place, can you help us understand why young Scottish men in particular were in many cases actually preferred um, for jobs in and around uh, slave trade plantations, etc., in Jamaica?
0: Um, well, I think there were push and pull factors, um, for, for all classes in the 1700s, we're talking really here about the 1700s, um, good opportunities at home in Scotland were rather scarce. Scotland was quite a poor country at the start of the 1700s. Now, the Scottish Parliament had passed legislation in the late 1600s to implement parish education. It wasn't, in, you know, it, it wasn't in implemented everywhere, but most parishes had a school, and those schools were practical pres- Presbyterian. Uh, it was a pre- practical Presbyterian education system, and it stress- stressed hard work. Self-reliance, reading and writing, but also a very practical arithmetic for measuring and bookkeeping and those kind of skills. That was; those were exactly the kind of skills that were needed in the colonies and, in particular, in plantations. So I think that there was a fit, um, be- and the Scots were had always been. Um, sailors they got around Scotland by sailing a lot of them had gone over the Atlantic um, and uh, young men followed looking for jobs and they had the skills that were needed to take up those jobs
1: and why was it that so many Scottish men in particular had that those skills because it does seem like it was disproportionate to other parts of the Empire
0: well, I think that we have to look at the you'd have to look at the Presbyterian um, the presbyterian education system the the and, the and the way that the church worked the in in, in scotland there was a belief a very strong belief during the 1600s that everybody had to be taught to read their Bibles. That everybody had to be. That, that Scotland was a special place that was be going to become like a, 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 a second um, Israel, you know, God's country that was going to be hardworking and and um, and and with people who who knew God's word and they had argued that nobody else should interpret there should be no hierarchy in the church that the ordinary people should understand God's word and read their book read his book and that was why the education system was the way it was and why it was so widespread possibly before other parts of Europe
1: Hmm, that makes sense um thank you for explaining that Um, I'd like to turn then to some of the information that we have from these young Scottish men performing all sorts of bookkeeping jobs um, in Jamaica. And you tell us about um, some of these accounts, for example, John Hamilton's. What can we learn about slavery in Jamaica from these kinds of accounts?
0: Well, this, because most planters borrowed money from Scotland to set themselves up in Jamaica. They sent home lists of slaves and many letters. This is, this is some of the material that was so interesting for me, many letters about the ins- the state of the enslaved workforce because they were in debt to bankers and these bankers needed to know, or they were working for a family who had gone home to Scotland and, um, That family expected to live at a very high standard. I think that the Scottish, that the Jamaican planters were famed for their extravagance when they got home. So the what we can learn is that they sent home. That there is a lot of information available, which tells us exactly what was going on on the plantation. What we do know is that they drove the slaves very hard to pay back the loans and to maximize profits for the family at home. They wanted to, um, <clears throat> but the most startling thing for me was when you look at the detail of the, the list of slaves, you find that the typical field worker with, that, that, with you know, that, that were their backs would be scarred from being constantly whipped into line those typical slave what we think of as a slave was not um a, you know a man at all the people doing the heavy cut, cane cutting work and digging were teenage girls why um, because the men were t- the men were the men were trained to do skilled jobs on and it was there were a lot of skilled jobs on the plantations so that it was the the women and and this Jamaican workforce worked harder we can we know from the economic evidence worked harder than any workforce ever before or since. Uh, investors demanded greater and greater returns, and these and the, the the heavy heavy work was left to the girls. The um the the men on the plantation would become uh, sugar boilers and distillers and carpenters and and and. The, Take on all the skilled jobs: bricklayers, masons, um, and the 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 list. It, all the jobs are listed on on um, the information that went home, and it's the girl, you can see that the the field workers were girls, not wholly girls, but they were predominated, which is not mm-hmm. how we think of it.
1: Mm-hmm. And another thing, perhaps that's not as we think, is um, you talk about in the book how there are actually relatively equal numbers of men and women who were enslaved in jamaica um, and you've already already mentioned a few of the kind of contributing factors towards that um but what impact did this have for the colony in general
0: well the slave the slave trade database shows that the import of slaves was 60 percent men um, but what if we look at the slave lists we can see that the 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 women generally live longer and survive better. Now, that's that's true for any society. Baby girls thrive better than baby boys. But that in itself isn't really sufficient to wholly explain the better female survival rate. Um, plantations typically... Uh, if we look at the slave list, had many more worn out old women and then a lot of young men. So there was a bit of a mismatch there um, in terms of uh, partnerships. Young women were in short supply and they were in many ways used and abused for sex by both white and black men, leading to high rates of venereal disease amongst both sexes and all classes. But the other result was a lack of any kind of stable family life compared to, let's say, other colonies like Virginia. And it's very, I don't honestly know why women survived so much better despite the punishing jobs. I've just said they worked harder than any workforce we've ever known. And the endemic sexual abuse, which is well documented. um, My guess is that perhaps um, each, each enslaved person was given a plot of land of their own. Uh, from which they grew their f- you know, on which they grew their food and and possibly i felt that from selling surplus fruit and vegetables which we know they did in the markets they became petty businesswomen with a bit of money in their hands and maybe they got some solace from that i i i was puzzled but it's definitely ch- when you look at the slave lists and and the uh numbers on plantations they did even up men died more um, more readily, although women were field workers.
1: Hmm. I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit more about those plots of land um, and the ability to generate essentially private income from that. Um, yes. What kind of enabled that to be possible, given how harsh the conditions were for enslaved people on Jamaica?
0: Yes. Um, the H.S. state um, found it cheaper to the merchant the, the merchants when uh when when the planters uh, sent their sugar home the merchants who uh, received that sugar um kept the accounts for the estate and they charged exorbitant prices for imported food and so the easiest solution uh for the uh, for the plantations was to allot each slave a little bit of rough hillside land that couldn't be used for sugar, from which to feed themselves. But they were allowed to sell the surplus. Now, each the Scots socialised. Over in in Jamaica socialised over extravagant meals in their impressive homes. They wanted fresh poultry. They wanted fish, salt pork, eggs, fruit, vegetables. All of these were bought in the market and they were produced and sold mainly by enslaved women. So each estate, estates trained the men, as I've just said. Each estate found it cheaper to train the sugar boilers, the distillers of rum, the carpenters, the bricklayers, um, and they were also allowed to hire themselves out to the neighbors on the days off so the, the the enslaved people had a great drive to survive and they they had almost two lives they they were working on the plantation but they also on their day off did a bit of skilled work and a bit of business and um, um generated a bit of income many of them so they they they, they provided the 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 Scottish population with all of the food, fresh food that they needed. So this wasn't a system they particularly wanted to um, disturb because it it, it saved the money from buying, buying in food. It provided them with what they wanted. But I think they also felt it tied the enslaved community to the to the the piece of land that they were on. If they ran away from the plantation, how were they going to eat? Um, When they had their gardens and they had their food in their gardens, that also sort of um, tied them to the the neighborhood. And I think that was also a factor, Uh, but it is surprising that they they allowed this business to go on. And from time to time it was discussed, but it was always uh, decided that uh, it should continue and it it was always that it was it settled down in the very early days of slavery in Jamaica that this was how things were run
1: interesting um i was particularly interested in the book that it did come up every so often and yet the result even of political debates were no no, no we're going to keep it this way um which is always quite interesting when you see things like that um, yes
0: yes the, the 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 pressure uh the pressure to the, the pressure to maximise income was very very strong, and the and the um, the cost of imported food was very very high, and it's it, it I, for those reasons I think they found it so much cheaper and easier to let it continue.
1: Mm. I'd love to ask um, about another aspect of the book, which is, of course, something uh, very famous about Scotland, uh, the importance of clan relationships and familial ties. Um, To what extent and in what ways were those relevant um, in Jamaica as well?
0: In the 1700s, the whole system worked on trust. You've got Bankers on one side of the Atlantic, and you've got the borrowers on the other side. So the borrowing money, the getting work, getting a place to um, live—this was all this was all done on trust. So obviously, your family relationships, your clan relationships, are important in building that trust. Uh, So when young men came uh, from Scotland, they would be taken into homes, into people's homes, people from their friends, relatives, friends of friends from their home areas. Um, I looked at a lot of letters of young men writing home saying, I found a friend from home and he's taken me in and he's going to help me find work. Um, It's a similar system that works in many parts of the world today, that country cousins come to town and are looked after by friends and relatives until they get an opening. So for the workers' crossing the Atlantic. It was important, but also it was very important for borrowing money that you had that trust, that family relationship, and then the community in Scotland and the community in Jamaica, the white community, travelled back and forth between the countries, they, between the two countries. They sent their children home to be educated. Um, they they uh, they got together to enjoy. Familiar Scottish food and entertainment on the other side of the Atlantic. So it was. It was. Um, it, there was a Scottish, a, d- a definitive Scottish community in Jamaica, uh, which uh, uh, who helped each other, uh, lent each other money, helped, You know, they looked after each other, um, and they were. They. They. This was. I think a, a one reason why. Um, once the Scottish young men came, they would they would stick it out and stay because they had that support. Mm.
1: And how then did it work on a political level? How were the relations between the Scottish um, people on Jamaica versus back in Scotland or ties in England? How did kind of those connections and communities function in terms of political
0: influence? Mm. The planters and the slave traders, the original, uh, often came from existing landed families or influential merchant families. And and they consciously built their political influence to defend, um, to defend, because Jamaica was a, um, was a, British colony. It was important to them that they uh, they staked a claim there and built their political influence. So the, uh, the the Scottish members of the British Parliament after 1707 were almost to almost every one of them pro-slavery. You wouldn't get a seat in Parliament without being uh, in favour. Uh, and because there was during the 1700s, there was a build-up of opposition. And those money, those people who um, who didn't come from that uh, uh, upper cl- landed class or influential class, um, spent their money. The people with new colonial money used some of it to buy the kind of land and property which would give them political power in Scottish communities. So by the mid mid to late 1700s, when anti slavery was gaining ground. Um, They had consolidated their power over borough councils, parliamentary seats, Um, and the end of slavery couldn't have happened without the 1832 Reform Bill, which changed the franchise and swept all these people out of parliament. But they were um, to resist the anti-slavery movement, and that was the, the... The Presbyterian Church, the grassroots of the Presbyterian Church, were anti-slavery. And to resist that, they unleashed a massive propaganda war, funding tours of Jamaica to get people to write favorably about the place, publishing favorable paintings showing happy slaves and accounts of Jamaican life. The press and the Scottish magazines had letters, articles, books, all defending what was going on in Jamaica. Um, And they also made vehement attacks on leading anti-slavery campaigners. Um, The anti-slavery movement um, concentrated on parliament, on changing the law. And the slavers eventually lost that legal battle. But they did win a very important propaganda victory, I think. Uh, All of that propaganda that they put out. Um, establish an idea of white supremacy, which was born and has lived on, I think. You know, born in that time, but lived on. The arguments that we use to justify slavery, uh, that Africans benefited from or needed white care and ownership, there are echoes of this propaganda that are still alive today. The Christian missions that went to Jamaica Um, were very much based on the idea that white people could provide moral guidance. The underlying story really was that black men were perhaps vicious and dangerous without this white guidance, and that black women were sexually promiscuous and immoral. They needed white control. And these ideas, I think, were implanted very deeply and have some consequences today. I'm not saying we believe these things today, but somehow that white supremacist thinking i think it has lived on and maybe one of, one of the reasons why um no jamaicans ever came to settle in scotland even more recently um we don't have uh, we didn't you know the windrush generation didn't settle down in scotland they settled in the northwest and they settled And there were black populations in Liverpool, in Cardiff, in Bristol, in London, anywhere that ships came in from Jamaica, there was a black population, but we didn't have one in Scotland. And I think that that's partly because that white supremacist propaganda was very, very strong.
1: what was the role within that, um, and generally in terms of the conversations around slavery, of the Scottish Presbyterian Church in particular?
0: Um, the the hierarchy of the Scottish Church, um, as the kind of established national religion, they were ambivalent about slavery. It came up regularly in the in the Scottish the Assembly of the Scottish Church because it was, in that sense, a kind of democratic church. Um, so in, it came up regularly, but they noted it, or they um, they noted the concern, but they didn't, at that level, do anything about it. Um, but Scottish, the Scottish religion, the Kirk, is decentralised in its decision making. The local elders have quite a lot of autonomy, and many of them petition Parliament. There was a, they, the Scots were overrepresented in the petitions to Parliament partly because of all these local churches um, uh, signing petitions um, and local Presbyterians uh, some of those who had <coughs> inherited estates in Jamaica uh, were kind of uncomfortable if they were good Christians with being um, associated with slavery and they some of them partnered with sim So local Presbyterians in Scotland um, partnered up with reform-minded planters, people, Scottish planters who'd come home and were a little uh, concerned about um, slavery. And these people sent the first missions to work with enslaved people on the plantations. Now, these missions were about establishing respect for the Sabbath, Christian family life, moral guidance. They taught obedience. They were not necessarily concerned with the exploitation and the money-making out of enslaved people. Um, but enslaved, nevertheless, the enslaved Africans were drawn into Christianity because it was the one place that gave them some dignity, that recognized their, um, their oppression, that t- treated them as human beings. And, um, the missions <laughs> but the missions in jamaica were resisted by the local jamaican planters sometimes very violently they attacked and harassed the ministers and the congregations they attempted to destroy the churches that had been built they were very aggressive and violent in their resistance to these uh, this this christian these Christian missions from Scotland.
1: Thank you for explaining that. I think the the structure of the Kirk is quite an interesting aspect for kind of explaining the variation um, within Scotland in particular. Um, But staying on kind of this question of uh, debates around slavery, the movement to abolish slavery in Britain, um, what did you find in your research and that you talk about in the book around the impact of the loss of the American colonies and the French Revolution? Um, when it came to this debate,
0: mm. um, I think the loss of Virginia, the loss of the American colonies, empowered the planter community in the Jamaican Assembly because they could use it to resist reform in slave con- of slave conditions, and to th- they they would threaten to break away and become independent what america had done and jamaica was very important financially it was worth much much more than all the tobacco in virginia to the um to to the british economy um so but because they had such a favorable tax regime for their sugar it's 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 unlikely that they would have actually done it and actually broken away but the threat of that um was powerful in and if we look at the one of the good examples of that is 1823. uh, The the revived anti-slavery movement had got the British Parliament, uh, the King and the government to agree that there should be slave reform, that there should be the reform of slave conditions. There should be a new slave law which gave uh, slaves rest days on the Sabbath and a a, a list of new conditions. but because the because the Jamaicans absolutely refused to implement this, and the King and the British government were were did not want to force it onto the Jamaicans and force the issue, it was never properly it was never implemented. Um, there was a uh, <coughs> it was a, so that the the reforms had been, that had been fought for in Britain. Were not actually implemented in Jamaica, and as a result of that, the, there was a slave revolt on the Scottish estates in Jamaica because the enslaved people knew that reforms had been agreed and that their their planter uh, bosses were were, were um, refusing to implement them. So there was it led to uh, quite a serious revolt in 1823.
1: Skipping ahead a little bit, um, obviously, slavery is eventually abolished. Um, the enslaved people on Jamaica are freed and the plantation owners were compensated for the loss of their, quote, property. Um, what happened after that? Plantation owners now have a whole bunch of money. Enslaved people are now freed, apparently. The trade is slave trade has stopped. Then what?
0: Well, I don't think freedom wasn't immediate. And if we look at the statistics, the slave trade doesn't stop. But um, what happened was that a system of apprenticeship, so-called, was introduced. All enslaved Africans over six years old had to work for their former masters, and they were going to be paid Um, This system never worked. It was abandoned as unworkable. It was supposed to go on for five years, but it didn't actually. Um, It was abandoned early on because it just wasn't working because many Africans, those with a bit of money, bought plots of land. Others squatted on abandoned estates and they used the skills they had. Um, as men and women, to develop the li- certain alternative lives that they could control for themselves. So if they were carpenters, if they were cooks, if, they, um, if they'd got a bit of land, they could grow stuff for themselves. So they began a, a new life. They began to design and control a new life for themselves with the skills that they had. Now, some of the plantations did pay wages to former slaves. Um, they found they couldn't make the same profit, um, and um, many of them just walked away. But they kept their land titles just in case money-making opportunities might arise in the future. Um, so modern Jamaicans, are con- many of them, are consequently still squatters who've lived for generations on land that they don't own. So the man- when I made my visit to Jamaica, the mountains were runaways Hid years ago, and the shores where enslaved people tended their plots to feed themselves now have tourist potential, and the inheritors of long ago owners are turning up to claim it. As I realised when I stayed holidayed at a place called Brighton Beach, where the community said to me that they were uh, they were squatters, and somebody would come back to claim their land, and they'd been there for generations, and could I could this is another spur to my work? Could could I could I look into it for them? And I said, I'm Scottish. I don't know anything about Jamaica. Why would it? Why would I be able to help? And they said, well, exactly because you are Scottish, and it was British law at the time uh, that's relevant. And we thought you could look into it. So I did. I did. <laughs> but that was um, uh, so th- they the the, Af- the the enslaved Africans began to build themselves a new sort of peasant life, I suppose, initially, but with the, with the skills that they developed during the plantation era. Mm.
1: Well, it clearly sounds um, like, first, you were quite committed to uncovering rather a lot um, in pursuit of this initial question. And that along the way, there were at least a few surprises, the one you've just told us of being asked about this. And you're like, well, what does that have to do with Scotland? And going, oh, wait, hang on. Um, but I'm wondering if Kind of thinking about this whole process of research and writing the book. Um, if there's maybe one or two other things you might be willing to share with us that you found surprising,
0: um, I suppose one of my surprise, I, I, one what I couldn't quite get over, um, the how that history, how the history of Jamaica. In, in Scottish lives in Jamaica and the numbers of Scottish people who had been in Jamaica uh, had disappeared because there would have been a period in, uh, if you'd lived in Glasgow in, this, in the late 1700s, the newspapers, everybody would have known somebody who was connected with Jamaica. Uh, it, the newspapers had there was sufficient interest for the newspapers in glasgow to run a column called plantation news which told everybody uh, uh, what was going on in jamaica the, in, and then the um the anti-slavery movement this the country was divided the question was a huge question it was dealt with in all the newspapers it was it was a, it was dealt with in the in the kirk it was you know all of it, there was a, it was a huge question for everybody and yet it had disappeared apart from a little bit of history of how uh, of the anti-slavery movement that was that that i couldn't quite um, come to terms with because i felt had people willfully suppressed it or was it just forgotten what had happened there because there was so much history and there is anybody who went into archives anybody who looked at the the Glasgow economy, you know, historically must have seen it because it didn't take much digging, uh, you know, to dig out a whole lot of information that was surprising to me. Why do you think it
1: was forgotten?
0: I think because the anti-slavery movement won in the sense that they won the argument and maybe the, the Kirk which was very powerful, Um, and the Christian thinking felt embarrassed, felt uneasy about that part of their history. They preferred to wipe it out, I think. And I think we've all, to a certain extent, the whole of Britain has done that. But I do think it was rather complete in Scotland it was rather effectively done um and of course that's changing now and there is a lot more research being done a lot more being written and a lot more work going on and um the University of glasgow has been particularly active there and the the city also has acknowledged its role and um so things are changing but it's taken it's it's taken 300 you know, two, three hundred years for this Mm. to happen. Well, you've
1: given us rather a lot to think about. um, And obviously the book has so much more detail that I definitely want to point listeners to. Um, But as you do seem to kind of get quite involved in projects, um, are you taking a break now that this book is out? Or is there another project that you're getting stuck into you can give us a sneak preview of?
0: Oh, my working title at the moment is The Scots... The English and the Union. Um, I've did so much work on uh, on the, the, uh, Scottish history around the 16, 1700s that I became interested in why, ha- it, what did Scots lose at the time of the Union in 1707 that has actually um, stayed with them? To this, to be revived at the moment, you know that what what is it they thought they had lost? What is it that they, um, which drives them at the moment for, towards independence? Uh, we're in a situation where half of the country is for and half is against. It's an in, it's a little bit like the anti-slavery uh, division in that sense: half for, half against. Um, and uh, so I'm intrigued and interested in trying to uh, trying to. Trace what it was that they thought they lost.
1: Interesting. Certainly not a straightforward topic. Um, So I'm sure that that end result will also be absolutely fascinating. But while you are off working on that, listeners can read the book that we've been discussing, which again is called Bought and Sold, um, out this year in 2022 from Luath Press. Kate Phillips, thank you so much for being on the podcast.
0: Oh, well, thank you for inviting me.